just by reminder, uh, for, the, for the month of August, we took uh, topics uh, that you all, the congregation, wanted uh, to hear preached on. And um, last week, we looked at what is Presbyterianism. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at faith. And specifically, the question is, uh, how do we steady our faith in unsteady times? And as I'm preparing for this, um, and I'm sure as you, as you heard from Jamie last week, I think a good aim for these topics um, is that they're conversation starters. So it's hard to know where, you know, to draw the circle in a lot of these. Um, and so if this sparks a question or conversation that you'd like to have about any of these topics, this is what we're here for. And so we'd love to meet with you, love to have coffee or whatever it is uh, that we could do to talk about these things further and uh, just share how the Lord is working in your life and what questions you have. And for me, there's no better topic. Well, some could say Presbyterianism is, is just a good enough topic, but I, to me, there's no better topic than the topic of faith itself, okay? So, um, so let's do that. Our text this morning is going to come from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Let me read that for us. Beginning in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray now that as we have just heard it read and as we hear it founded upon uh, that you would teach us, that you would meet with us by your Spirit, that you would open our eyes and open our ears to see and hear things otherwise we could not, uh, that we would grow in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we steady our faith while the world seems unsteady? Or another way to ask that question is, you know, how, how do we think about the biblical definition of faith? And, um, you know, even we might think about just different circumstances in our lives. Am I believing right? Could be the question that, that helps understand what we're after. The New Testament uses the word uh, pistis to talk about faith, which means belief and trust and conviction of the truth. And as you just noticed, we use multiple words in our English language to understand what faith is and how it works. And this is why I think the topic of faith can actually be tricky. The New Testament uses one. We have many. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to begin by looking at what faith is not. And then we're going to look at what faith is as we understand the biblical definition of faith. And then we're going to look at ways that we apply this to our lives so that we may better understand how to study our faith in unsteady times. So let's take this first one. Um, uh, bad definitions of faith, um, or what faith is not. And the, the, the first one I would say uh, about this is, is thinking about faith as quantity. Thinking about faith as quantity. Do I have enough faith? Um, in episode 5 of Star Wars, uh, The Empire Strikes Back, uh, Luke finds himself in a swampy wetland with a little green figure named Yoda. And Luke's ship, or to be precise, his X-wing, has crashed into the swamp and it has submerged underwater. After many attempts to extract the, the X-wing by uh, the use of the force, he just can't do it. And he's clearly defeated, if you're familiar with the scene. 
And this is when Yoda, the Jedi Master, steps up. And he begins, by use of the Force, to move this X-Wing up out of the swamp and over onto dry ground. And as Luke is watching this, he, he's, he's in disbelief. And he literally says, I, I don't believe it. To which only a Jedi Master can reply and say, this is why you fail. Okay? There seems to be, as we think about scenes like this in our culture, a mentality among us and even within the church that, that, that thinks about faith like this, that the reason we get things in life is because we believe enough or we have enough faith in ourselves or in God or in something. How many times have you heard a coach after a game, right, perhaps the winning team's coach uh, more specifically, uh, give some type of speech like, well, I'm just so proud of this group of, of guys or girls. They just believed in themselves enough and we got it done. Wade Clark Roof, a sociologist from the University of California, said in his book, A Generation of Seekers, that eight out of ten conservative evangelicals accept what he calls a version of possibility thinking, or the belief that one can do just about anything if he or she believes in themselves enough. And the assumption, of course, is that if you fail, you just didn't have enough belief or faith in yourself. Do we say things like this that speak of faith as quantity without perhaps even realizing it? Almost as if we, if we needed more, we could just go to the store and pick some up. But that's not how the Bible talks about faith. You are actually given faith as a gift, according to Ephesians 2.8. And that faith, no matter how great or small, is actually enough. The question becomes how we apply faith in life, which we will get to. But this is faith as quantity, right? Another bad definition of faith is faith as quality. Faith as quality. We often talk about having the right faith or having confidence in our faith. Or I wish I had faith like this person does. The strength or a degree of quality in our faith. And this can lead to questions of, am I believing correctly? Certainly, we need to know what to believe in, but faith as quality places what the emphasis on the believer, not the object of faith. Let me try to illustrate this if I can. Suppose there are, are two uh, folks, two guys, two girls, pick, take or pick, right, on the shoulders of this uh, river, and it's wintertime, and it's all frozen over. And the first guy there says, you know, I come here every single time at this time of, of year when the river freezes over, and I just love it, and I, I love to come down here and, and, and look at its beauty, and, and I love to go across to the other side and just walk across and enjoy something that you can't enjoy any other time. And after talking very excitedly about this, he takes off. And there he goes, walking across the eyes to the other side of the river. Well, the next guy who desires to do the same isn't really as confident as this other guy and actually begins thinking, man, I don't really have the confidence that this other person had, you know, and begins to doubt, begins to think about, well, what if I get out there and the ice starts to crack? What's going to happen? And as he's having this internal conversation, he muscles up enough faith, you know, if you will, enough courage and, you know, kind of grinds his teeth and just goes for it. And sure enough, he makes it to the other side. Now, suppose both of these men are talking about why they were able to make it across, where the first guy is saying and even boasting in his own confidence, well, I sure am glad that my faith was strong enough to make it to the other side. 
while the other person just sat there and thought, man, I wish I had faith like this person. Now, hearing this, like, would we, would we, would we say that it was the, the quality of their faith that actually got them across the ice? No, we would look at them and say, it wasn't, wasn't the quality of your faith. It wasn't the confidence you had in yourself. It was actually, in this case, the thickness of the ice that held you as you walked across, which really is the object of your faith in this case, regardless of how confident you felt in yourself or how unconfident you felt in yourself. But this is what happens when we think of faith as quality. We gaze upon ourselves and we think about, well, there must be something wrong with me. Instead of fixating on the object of our faith, which is what our faith is in. Another definition of, of faith that I would discourage, faith as that thing you do when you run out of facts. And suffice it to say, perhaps many of us have been in conversations or overheard people talking uh, or dialoguing or arguing even at times about certain matters. And, and you'll hear the claim, you know, especially if it's along religious lines, you know, you can have your faith and believe what you want to believe, but in this conversation, we're going to deal with facts. And so faith then gets separated from our intellect. It gets separated from our reason. And that those are two different channels. And let me just suggest to you, that is not how the Bible defines biblical faith. It does not separate our intellect and our reason with believing, as we'll see. Another definition that perhaps may be more pertinent to the church is that faith is the act of purging yourself, yourself of any doubts. That many people who, who wrestle with their faith and doubt a lot think that this, I just might, must not be believing correctly. If you're a new Christian here this morning, let me ask you to purge this understanding of faith from your mind. Having doubts doesn't mean that you lack faith or that you're not a Christian. Rather, it actually can just be a sign that you're human. The question is, how do we respond to our doubts with faith? That's the more important question and one we'll get at. But the fact of thinking about faith as, as this place that I get to where I have no more doubts, again, puts the onus on ourselves. In fact, an error that many who hold this view about faith <clears throat> run into, uh, <clears throat> the error is that they are no longer trusting Jesus, but trusting their faith or having faith in their faith. The Pharisees would be an example of this in the Bible. Lastly, faith as the intellectual leap, if you've heard of this one. Like the definition of faith as something you do when you run out of facts, the intellectual leap is popular today uh, for moderns or postmoderns. The intellectual, intellectual leap says that since faith or spiritual matters are never rational in nature, in order to have faith in something, you must what? Leap over what can never be proven empirically. And that's what faith is. Again, the Bible never defines faith in this way. And it certainly never asks you to suspend your reason. One of the greatest examples of this is when Jesus actually showed himself to Thomas, who was one of the disciples and who doubted that Jesus had actually risen from the grave, didn't think he was alive. And in this moment of doubt, Jesus could have responded in a number of ways. He could have shamed Thomas for not having enough faith. He could have pointed Thomas out as an example of, of what a disciple is not. But is that what he did? No, he actually went to Thomas. He entered Thomas's circumstances, his doubts, if you will. And he took his hand and he said, touch my wounds. See my hands. In other words, Jesus didn't ask Thomas to make some intellectual leap. 
He revealed himself to him, and he does the same by his Holy Spirit for those that ask, which is why we can have all the empirical data that we want in front of us and still not believe. We must have our eyes opened by Jesus who gives us faith. Okay. These are just a few uh, bad understandings of biblical faith that uh, just by, by virtue of living, we, we breathe these in at times. We take these in as we go about our days. We listen to songs as we watch TV, whatever it is. And you can usually camp these out under two headings. It's either putting the emphasis of faith on you, the believer, or it's separating, creating a, a dichotomy between faith and reason, which the Bible doesn't do. All right, so what is biblical faith then? All right, if, those are, if that's what faith is not, um, and hopefully just, you know, if it's helpful just to get some of those assumptions out, let's again get to what faith is according to Scripture. Uh, the Westminster Confession talks about saving faith as accepting, receiving, and resting in Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. The New City Catechism, which is a great tool for learning, uh, says that faith in Christ is acknowledging, acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. And what you hear in these definitions are three things, three components of biblical faith that have to go together in order for us to be exercising what the Bible calls faith. And it is acknowledging, receiving, and resting. It is the three-legged stool, if you will. And to have just any two of these legs will not suffice. They go together. So what is this? Faith as acknowledging. Let's start there. This is the part of faith that deals with the intellect. This is the part of faith that, that says your mind must assent to, agree with these facts. Our word for this is belief, okay? So this is that first leg, acknowledging or belief, satisfying your mind with things. Donald McLeod says belief in this is the submission of the mind to the truth of the gospel. In other words, you hear or you have some, some you know, information or knowledge of the truth of the gospel. You read in the scriptures about Jesus and who he is. You read about his work. You read about his, his sacrifice. You read about sin, right? You digest this claim. You understand yourselves as the Bible talks about who you are. You see your need for a savior as the Bible presents it. And you deal with all of those questions and you come to the conclusion that these are true. That these are facts, and on some level, faith is the belief that those things are true. This is the agreement. This is the acknowledgement. And the Bible is saying to you, your mind is the first thing that latches onto this. This is why faith in Scripture is never separating your reason from faith. Now, does this mean that we understand everything perfectly? No. That's true for anything in life. Right? Does it mean that you understand it enough uh, just to acknowledge that it's true? I would say yes. Does any, any, every, uh, everyone in here come, come about acknowledging Christianity as true in the same way or manner? No. But what this is saying is that faith begins with the intellect. It's not suspending reason or ignoring facts. It assumes you are being intellectually honest, as we like to say, about life and how none of us, none of us are living life 
absent of faith in something or someone. This is the first leg, acknowledging or belief. The second leg is receiving, or what we refer to as trusting. Okay? Trusting in uh, the truth that has been presented in Scripture. Faith cannot remain, as we often say, a head game. It has to go to, as it were, our heart as well. So if belief is acknowledging that the things that Scripture is talking about are true, right, then receiving or trusting is submitting your life to those claims. Let me try to illustrate this, if I can, uh, by talking about elective surgery. Perhaps you're thinking about having something done to your knee or your shoulder, and anytime you think about doing this, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to research this. You're going to get on Google, and you're going to uh, research what the surgery is, who does it, then you're going to get on the phone with your friends and find out who has had this surgery, and you're going to talk with them about who they, who, who they got to do this surgery. Did you like it? Right? You're going to gather all the information you can. And then at some point, you're going to make a decision about uh, which doctors you want to go with, and you'll probably schedule a consultation with that doctor, maybe one or two of them. Right? Tell me what you're going to do, doc. Tell me how this is going to go. What is your uh, plan for working on this part of my body? Then you're going to pick a doctor some point, right? Rubber's got to meet the road. We're going with this guy, but you're maybe, or this girl, but you're maybe not, you know, this, this certain yet. So you're going to meet with this person, right? You're going to meet with this doctor, and we're going to talk for, the, for this further. You're going to pray about it, right? You're going to talk to people about this more. Then the day's going to come when you're going to put it on the calendar and say, this is the day we're doing the surgery. And you're going to show up at the doctor's office, and you're going to submit yourself to their scalpel, okay? All the way up to that point, you have not exercised biblical faith, right? You, you've, you've exercised the, the idea of belief, of, of, of acknowledging the facts, right? You've researched it, you've dealt with it intellectually, but you have not, you have not received it. You've not trusted in it until what? Until you put yourself under the submission of that doctor and the work that they are going to do on you. Faith, as the Bible describes it, is the combination of both belief and trust in this way. It is intellectual assent and submitting your life to those beliefs at the same time. To have one without the other is not biblical faith. To be all feels, as we say, with no acknowledgement of facts and the truth is just as bad as knowing everything, right? Yet not allowing it to shape or change your life. You need both. But there is still one important thing here, and that is the object of your faith. You can have belief intellectually, right? And you can trust in something that you submit your life to, but what matters is what you what rest in. And this is the object of your faith. When you go to the doctor and submit yourself to that person's scalpel, you are resting, whether you realize it or not, in their ability to do what they say they're going to do. Now, none of us, right, would, would look at a surgeon and say, I, I put my whole life and existence in you, right? Can't bear that weight. It is in micro of what the Bible calls us to do in macro, if you will, of capital R resting in Jesus Christ. The true object of our faith, the only one capable of, of carrying all of the burdens that we have, all of the fears that we have, 
all of the insecurities that we have. He is the one that we lean on, as the Psalms call over and over, our rock, right, in every single station in life. And by contrast, when we lean upon things in this life, and perhaps even without noticing it, and we ask them to be our rock, right, to be Jesus for us, this is where what fear and insecurity come in. This is where we begin to feel unsteady and unsteady times. Everything else changes in life, but Jesus doesn't. Our circumstances change, our feelings change, our intellect changes, but Jesus does not. The object of our faith does not. He remains the same for all eternity. And because that's true, we can find peace in the midst of uncertainty. We can find joy in the midst of hardship. We can find uh, security in the midst of chaos. But only if he's the object of our faith. C.S. Lewis says this, that faith is the art of holding on to things that your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change whatever view your reason takes. In a few weeks, we'll start our series in Ephesians, which was a letter to the church in Ephesus that Paul wrote, or probably more likely had dictated, while he was in jail. And I'm going to remind you of this often as we go through this book. He is chained to a Roman guard. He is in jail. There's no promise that he's getting out of this place. And none of us would want to trade places with him. Yet, yet, when you read Ephesians, you might as well think that he is on a Disney cruise writing this somewhere. He has joy. He has love for others. He is not bogged down in the midst of his circumstances. Navel-gazing, as we like to say. He is almost foolishly hopeful. Why? It's because of the object of his faith. Does it change with his circumstances? We all put our faith in something, and what the Bible is constantly asking us over and over is, what is it, what is it? And when we put those three together, the acknowledgement, right, the acknowledging of, of, the, of the truth of Scripture, and wrestle with that. It's not a one-and-done thing. As we'll see in a moment, we come back to these things, right? But then as we practice what we believe by trusting and submitting ourselves to what the Bible calls us to, to what King Jesus calls us to, right, what we're doing is we're putting him at the center of our gaze. And perhaps what, 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 what the practice of living out our faith really is, is that when life gets unsteady, Right? We become aware of the things that are causing us fear, causing us insecurity. And as we walk through Scripture, in community together, mind you, right, what often we find is that we have replaced Jesus as the object of our faith with something else. So let's turn to that now and perhaps see how this happens in our life and see how we can uh, use these tools as believers that God has given us right, to find hope in hopeless times. And this gets to the application. How do we steady our faith while the world seems unsteady? And the answer to that is we apply the object of faith to our circumstances and every station of life. Our New Testament reading from Luke 17 with Jesus and the disciples and the disciples asking for an increase of faith, you know, wanting to be, to be faithful in the moment, right? And that's not a bad thing. But you know, Jesus doesn't answer their question the way they want him to. 
What does he do? He pulls them back to the object of their faith. And by doing that, he refers to, look, if you just, if you have seed, if you have faith as a mustard seed, that's enough. Because it's not about how you feel about it. It's about what you're looking at. That's his point. He's not denying that they don't have faith. He's just trying to move them away from bad questions and get them to look at him. And that is how we navigate life uh, in the 10,000 different places and circumstances that we find ourselves in it. Before I continue, I'm going to talk perhaps at times about anxiety, about stress, about depression even. And when I do that, I am not referring to those who have seen a doctor and have been diagnosed with chronic anxiety or depression. This can apply to you for sure, and it absolutely can. But I don't want you to hear, if you just believed in Jesus enough, you wouldn't have any fear, anxiety, depression, etc. So let me get that out first and before I say anything else. That's not what I'm saying. When we are applying the object of our faith to situations in life, we are learning to do two things. Apply that faith, but also uncover the source of that anxiety, fear, and anger. And this is part of, part of what we call sanctification in our tradition, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So let me go through a couple of examples. This first one is, is sort of long, but it houses a lot of topics that I think are relevant to our context. Um, it's a story about a friend. Uh, it's a conversation I had with him uh, in a, about six months ago. No, no, this is a couple years ago now that I remember. Yes, okay. Nobody here. That's what's important. Y'all are going to be sitting around thinking, who is he talking to? Who is this? Uh, nobody here. And, it was a, and the reason for this is it was an election year. So we're going to talk about politics here. And um, my friend calls me, and uh, we're talking, and he says, just starts going, you know, I was driving out of my neighborhood and down my street, and there was a, we'll call it a, a sign in the yard for a particular candidate, doesn't matter which one, doesn't matter which party. And this is what he said to me. He said, Ryan, I got so angry, I just want to drive my car over that sign. Whoa, what's, what's, what's that all about? And goes on to just talk about and kind of rant about like how ignorant these people must be and how uninformed they are. And, and I'm just listening, I'm just listening. Now, politics in general, right? We'll start here, we'll start easy. If it were an election season, we'd probably be saying this more often. Candidates, you know, all this stuff is, is important, but it's, it's emotionally charged, we get it. And when we begin to talk about elections and we begin to talk about candidates, right, just a basic basic application for our faith is for Christians to what? To say, look, I don't put my hope, I don't put my hope and my faith in a candidate. And sometimes that's enough to back us off that ledge, right? From driving your car into somebody else's yard to to run over their sign. To just take a deep breath, right? I don't put my hope in a candidate. Okay, does that mean that politics and all this stuff doesn't matter? No. But it actually orders your desires accurately so that you can effectively move in and help because you're now serving Jesus and not some manifestation of, 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 of a God that really is yourself, of what you think needs to happen and what you think needs to go on, okay? But, but we need to go deeper, right? Because as I, as I said, I don't know about you, I'm listening to this, I'm thinking there's some real issues here. Maybe I'm the person to walk with you through this. Maybe I'm not. But I, I asked him, so why are you so angry? Like, do you hear, hear yourself? And he, and he didn't even realize he was angry, which may be as far as some of us can go this morning. Like, are we aware emotionally of what is going on inside of us and how we're coming across other people and how that might uncover things that are going on in our own hearts that a pastor or elder or friend or neighbor can help us walk through and see? 
But he was very unaware of this. And so I just asked him, why are you angry? And he kept coming back with just things like, well, they're so unformed and, and elections have consequences and this affects people's livelihood. And, um, you know, I just don't want somebody else determining what happens to me in my life. And these are all good things. Like, they're all real concerns. And as we kept talking, what became came true, what was underneath this, is that we're really dealing with this person in particular, issues of control and security. When I see that candidate sign, it's basically saying, you are not in control and all hope is lost. You can't affect the things that are going to affect you the most. We kept talking about the implications of this. It dove into matters of livelihood and money and, and how, you know, if this person gets elected, this is going to have this kind of effect on my business, which are real concerns. But what are we talking about here? We're talking about security. And see, this is where the application of faith becomes important. It doesn't make these matters unimportant. Please don't hear that. But what it helps us do is apply our faith to these things. So let's do that. When we find ourselves in situations where we are not in control, any control freaks in this room, don't raise your hand. I know there are. I'm one of them. Pick a situation. I, I, I don't do well if I don't have my hands around it in some way. So it's not just politics, although this is the example, right? But as we apply faith to us, whether it's some type of scripture we need to go back to and be reminded of, whether it's submitting ourselves to that scripture or whether it's removing candidates of office as the object of our faith and putting Jesus there, we are then reminded first and foremost in this situation, uh, nonetheless, of what the Bible says to you about control. And the first thing the Bible says to you about control is, hey, there's way more than this that you're not in control of. So let's start there right? So all the white knuckling that you're doing in life, there's so much out of your control that if you're even aware of it, I don't know that you would be able to cope with it. But that's why I entered this world and died for you, right? This is, Jesus is saying, start there. But go to scripture then. Who, who is in control of all things? Right? Who is in control of all things? Jesus is in control of all things. And in that moment, our, our desires are reordered, right? Perhaps clarity about, about, about what is really the problem. Is it this person, this candidate who I don't even know, or is it what this implies? Is it how the object of faith has been removed, thus forcing me to not remember that Jesus is over everything? It's here, then, that we can begin to care about elections, care about business policies, policies, Talk about the things in our life that we can and can't control, but do that with hope because you've been given that in Jesus Christ. Another way to put this when I talk about control is that we are always trying to be the Jesus in our life and having the process of walking the, these conversations through in our mind with other people, mind you, helps us replace ourselves as the focus and put Jesus back where he needs to be as the object of our faith. Right? But I mentioned security as we talked about money with this person. Maybe this is your issue as well. Like, what do I do when money's tight? What do I do when I don't know if my livelihood's going to continue? I lose a job. Real issues. How do we apply our faith to these things? Well, the way we apply our faith to this, again, is, is walking back through the object of our faith. Pull back what the fear is. And there's legitimate fears here. 
But one of the fears is, is that security will not happen for me in the way that I want it to. And what Jesus asks you to do in that moment as an extension of faith is recognize that there is nothing in this world, your job, no amount of money, no nothing that's going to give you the security that you're asking. And so what? Put your hope in me. One of the greatest, greatest things, lines I took from one of my seminary professors, I'll say it a hundred times before I leave here, I hope, is that there is no security outside what God provides. And that's hard, because I want him to provide a lot more sometimes for me. But this goes to the other side of this equation. You might be saying, well, Ryan, that's easy to say, you know, when you have a job, right? When you aren't, you know, when, you ha- when money isn't an issue and you feel like you have security. And I would say, is it? Because what's the other side of that coin? The other side of that coin is I began to trust and rest in those things. And f- this, this then helps crystallize the object of faith, right? What faith is having us do in every station of life is grow more and more dependent upon Jesus. So the person who has too much money, right, too much job security, and the person who doesn't, doesn't mean they're in a better situation as it pertains to faith. And this, again, is a reordering of our desires. Like one of the worst things God can do for me and he can do for you is give you what you want. It really is. And I'm at 42, and, and like that has been pounded into my mind, and I pushed it away in college, and I probably pushed it away when I got married. Now I'm just like, that is so true, and I'm thankful for what the Lord has given me. That is, that is an exercise of faith in this area. That's money, that's security. What about children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, cousins, people we love? Right? How do we apply faith in this situation, right? And, and, and part of the, the challenge is, is, is we love these people and we want the best for them. And we have a wonderful plan for their life. They just knew it. And I know many of you um, with children and grandchildren alike who, uh, you know, move, about to move off to college, that's a scary thing. About to move into the workforce, that's a scary thing. Starting to drive, that's a scary thing. Right? And so all these fears well up of what's going to happen, right? Am I going to do something that's going to cause them harm? And the answer to that is, you've already done that, but we can talk about that later. But when we pull back, like what's underneath this, right? And we begin to apply the object of our faith, we're brought to the place where we are reminded that it's Jesus who loves my children, my grandchildren, my cousins, whoever it is, more than I do. And maybe that's where you stay, right? There's that belief, there's that intellectual scent that you've got to be a, grab a hold of. So you go through scripture, right? Maybe you come back to your baptism, your children's baptism. What do we say in baptism? What is this? This is actually you returning your child to God himself, trusting in him for their salvation. It's like Jesus gave you this gift and you're like, thank you, I got to give it right back to you though. That's what this is. We are literally saying, here, you love this child more than I do. You can do more for this child than I ever could, and I'm actually going to trust you with that. So maybe we come back to that. Maybe we come back to our baptism. But underneath it all, if we're honest about it, when we begin to deal with all the things that our children, grandchildren, everybody else that we love, like all of those things well up, and what the question under the question is, is do I trust that God really loves them? And, and this is where you have to apply faith to that circumstance. How do you know that he really loves them, even even if the unimaginable happens? It's this table. You don't get answers for everything that you want. I don't get answers for everything that I want. 
but I can't go forward in life intellectually, being intellectually honest about the fact that God doesn't love them more than I do. That's applying our faith. I could say more about this. I'm running out of time. Another circumstance that someone sent in is just culture, right? It's growing more and more progressive. To some, it's growing more and more conservative. And it brings fears into each one of our lives for various reasons. What do we do? Well, applying faith looks like going back to Scripture and recognizing that there is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. And it doesn't mean that we don't care about the culture. It doesn't mean, again, that we don't you know, have concerns and those concerns aren't valid, but we start there. And we recognize that throughout all of Scripture, right, you're either in two places. Right? Christians, believers, are, they're in two places. They're either in Babylon or they're in Jerusalem. Right? They're either in, in the worst of what is paganism or they're in you know, the high society of religious order. And here's the deal. None of those are great. And, and, and part of what happens is we begin to engage our faith into this question about, about what's happening with the culture and what's going on is we begin to realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm an alien here. As Scripture has told me, I'm not supposed to feel at home here. And actually, as we dig a little bit further in this topic, right, as we begin to figure out, like, what it is that God wants for me to do, he has called us to mission. That's the church. And, and as we pull that back, what I begin to see in my heart is, is perhaps maybe just to talk about maybe I would want culture to all, you know, to look a little more conservative. And what I mean by that is I want everybody to go to church. And you know I want that. It's not so that I have a lot of people to talk to. It's, I feel safe. I feel like I understand the world. And when I feel safe and when I feel like I understand the world, you know what that tells me? Is I don't have to engage anybody. Part of Part of what Scripture does is it points out all of the insecurities and the areas that we have where we want to go to what's safe, we want to go to what we know. When God has called us on mission to engage culture, whether it's Jerusalem or Babylon, they all need Jesus, Pharisee or pagan. And if we can begin to be honest about what's really underneath this, the fear and the insecurity and the anger that we have, is that really at the end of the day, Jesus is calling you to something that's really hard, difficult, and quite frankly, something we don't want to do. And so in, with, with our nostalgia, we'll just either wish for the good old days to return, which weren't that great, right, or complain about how bad and lost this generation is. And, and I would just say for those that that is on repeat, for some of us, right, do you know what somebody who is of this generation thinks when, you, when they hear that? How hopeless they must feel. And perhaps some of you, as I speak to Christians, how you lose their ear in your own efforts to minister to them. Don't do that. Instead, you're on mission with me. I'm on mission with with Theola, who's 93, and I'm on mission with Bess, who's seven, and I'm sure there's people younger than her, I know there are, and everybody in between. What does it look like for us together to move forward, trusting, fearful, of course, but trusting in the object of our faith as we engage 
what Jesus calls us to do. There are many more things that we could talk about. Again, this is starting the conversation. I would love to engage this with you. I will leave you with John 16, as we think about these things. I have said these things to you, he says, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I think the first time I preached here, I said to you all, we are on offense. The church is on offense. And while we can wrestle with our fears, right, our faith is as clear and certain as, as it can be. It's not changing. And this is what allows us to move out into the world on mission for him until Jesus returns. And so where do you need help this morning? Is it with the belief, the intellect side of things, acknowledging right, that the Bible is true, and maybe you need to revisit some of those things. Maybe you need to, in community, ask questions about those things. This is what we want to be about here as the church. This is not the place where you come in and act like you don't have questions. This is the place you come in with your questions. Everybody who acts like they don't have questions, they're faking it. We all have questions because we're human, so let's do that. And I have questions, so at least I'll start there with me. The pastor has questions, and I'll need you to walk with me and pray with me through that. But maybe that's you. Maybe somebody else, just, it's the trusting component. You know, I get the facts of the Bible. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in the church. I, be, I believe it, but my life is not conforming to it. And to go back to the surgery illustration, what areas of your life, by faith, do you need to ask Jesus, like, let me come under your scalpel here. Maybe it's giving and tithing. Maybe it is engaging your neighbor. Maybe it's just being more friendly here to people you've been in church with for 40 years because that's hard. Family is hard. What would it look like for you to take the next step to actually allow the things you believe to shape your life? And lastly, what is the object of your faith? What fights for the center stage as the object of your faith? Money, power, intellect, your children, your job. What, what, what brings you anger and insecurity when it is threatened or taken away? And how would shifting your gaze to Jesus change that, knowing that he has you? With that, let's go to the table. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of faith that you give us. And as we parse it and look at it under the microscope, may we use these terms together to help people grow in their faith. Maybe it's acknowledgement or belief. Maybe it's trusting and submitting our lives to what we believe. Maybe it's, I, I just have the hardest time keeping Jesus as my focus. And would, would, would we all respond with, me too. Let's do this together as his people. And would you receive the glory for that, we pray. In his name alone, amen.